If you got your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to be in verses 17 through 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and verses 17 through 25. Uh, I, I see a couple of people that might be new today uh, are visiting, so what we're doing, we started in January uh, going through the book of 1 Corinthians, so we have gone through ten and a half chapters um, and we are in chapter uh, 11. So all of this is recorded and put on a podcast, so if you're interested in, in getting caught up or if you miss a week or something, you can, you can catch up on the, uh, on the podcast. Uh, the title of our lesson <clears throat> this morning is The Lord's Supper, and um, the last part of chapter 11 is all about the Lord's Supper, and we will probably be here for two weeks at least, uh, maybe three weeks, maybe four weeks. I don't know. We'll just see how long... Uh, it's going to take us to go through it. There's a lot to learn here, uh, a lot to talk about. What is the Lord's Supper? What is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? How should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Uh, just all kind of different things uh, about it. So I, I want to start here. Anyone that's has been a Christian for any length of time, you really don't have to be a Christian very long to understand that there are really two rites or two ordinances that Christians make a very big deal about. Here at River Life, you'll, you'll see us do this. There's two things that we celebrate over and over and over again. We talk about over and over again. Two things, and that is uh, baptism and, um, and the Lord's uh, Supper. And the reason we attach so much significance to these two things is because these are two things that Jesus himself told us to do. I mean, he commanded us to do these things. We are to be baptized. We are to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And in fact, not only did he tell us to do them, he set the example by participating in them himself. Did he not? I mean, not only did he command us, he didn't just command us to do them and then go off and not do them himself. He not only commanded us to do them, he, he actually participated. He was baptized himself. He participated in the first in the first Lord's, Lord's Supper. Now, in today's passage, of course, we're going to be talking specifically not about baptism, but about the Lord's Supper, which is good because, you know, I'm afraid, and I've really thought a lot about this, I'm afraid that many Christians today have kind of come to the point where we've lost the we've lost the value of the Lord's Supper. We just kind of we just kind of take it for granted as something we do. We don't really think about what it entails. Uh, I, I just think too many people in the church today see it as, well, it's just something that we tack on to the end of a, a service. It's a, it's a ritual that we go through, but we don't really think about the meaning of what's going on uh, behind it. But it wasn't always this way. In fact, there was a time in Christianity when people saw the Lord's Supper as, a, as an ordinance worth dying for. I was going back and, and looking through some history. Did you know in England, from 1558 to... 50, I'm sorry, from 1555 to 1558, 288 people were burned at the stake by Queen Mary. Uh, one was an archbishop, four were bishops, 21 were pastors, 55 of them were women, and four of them were children. And they were tied to a stake and burnt to death. 288 people over, over four years. And, 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 and just so you know, they're just, actually, they actually got the names of them. John Rogers, John Hooper, Roland Taylor, Robert Farrar, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, John Philpott, Thomas Cramner. 
These are real men, real women, real children. And why were they burned? They were burned to death because of their belief in the Lord's Supper. They, they saw that as something so important, so valuable, that their beliefs, they were willing to go to the stake and, and be burned to death. And see, I'm afraid that we've lost some of that. We, 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 just, we just see it as something that's just tacked on at the end of the service. We do it, and, and we move on. Now, I mentioned this to show, again, that there was once a time where people put a lot of value, uh, put a lot of importance on the Lord's Supper and, and baptism as well, and, and their meanings carried a lot of importance. And it's so important that, that men and women would, would die for it. Now, if you go back to the Middle Ages in the, in the 15th century, the 16th century, I mean, that was an age marked by brutality. They literally would kill you for your theology. If you didn't have the right theology, if you didn't have the right doctrine, they literally would torture you and kill you. Now, nobody wants to go back to that. Okay, that's not what we're saying. But it, that might have been an age marked by brutality. I'm afraid that our age is marked by superficiality. That we just don't put, they put a too much weight on doctrine. And so I'm afraid sometimes we don't put enough. We just let anything uh, kind of go. So as we spend the next two to three weeks on this passage, I hope that these lessons will not only give us a, a better understanding of the Lord's Supper, a better understanding of what we now call communion, uh, maybe help us see it in a way that we haven't seen it in a long time, but it'll also reignite a passion in us uh, for, this, for this beautiful gift that the Lord has passed down uh, to His church. So I want to start out by looking at a little bit of the history of the Lord's Supper. You know, Paul, in this passage, and we'll get to it in just a second, just starts talking about the Lord's Supper. But I want to get, you know, where did it come from? How did, what happened? You know, Paul's sitting there, uh, he's writing a letter to the church at Corinth about the Lord's Supper. What happened before we, we got to this point? Well, we all know, or probably most of us know, that on the night before he died, the night before he went to the cross... Um, he was in the upper room, he's with his disciples, he's going to leave that upper room, he's going to go to the garden, into the garden, the soldiers are going to come and arrest him and take him away, uh, take him before the Sanhedrin, take him before Pilate. The next day he'll be hung on a cross and he will die. And that night before his death, Jesus gathers with his disciples uh, in an upper room to eat a meal, to eat his last supper. And what he's eating is the Passover meal. Okay, now what is the Passover meal? Well, the Passover, if we go way back in history, Passover is the Jewish festival which celebrates how God delivered or led the Israelites out of Egypt under the leadership of, of Moses. And I assume most of you here probably know this story, but just in case you don't, if you go back to the book of Exodus, the Bible tells us that God sent ten plagues upon Pharaoh and upon the Egyptian. You go back and read the story, and you got the frogs and the locusts and the blood in the water and all these different things. And all of these things, Pharaoh just hardened his heart. He wouldn't let the people go. So finally it comes down. God says, I'm going to send one more plague. I'm going to send one more final thing. And this was where the angel of death would come across the land, and he would pass over every house, every farm, and the firstborn of every human and the firstborn of every animal would die. 
Okay, and he said, he said this is, this is going to happen. doesn't matter. Firstborn of the sheep, firstborn of the cattle, firstborn of human beings. The firstborn on that household or that farm or whatever the case may be is, is going to die. Now, by the way, the Israelites weren't exempt. In other words, they had to do something. The, the angel of death wasn't going to come over their house and say, oh, you're a Jew, I'm going to go on by. No, they had to do something. And what they had to do is they had to kill a lamb and they had to take the blood of that lamb and they had to put it over their doorpost. And when the angel of death passed over that house, if he saw the blood, then he would pass over or, and he wouldn't stop there uh, and he would, he would move on. In Exodus 12, 12 through 13, it says this, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of, of Egypt. So this is what God is, is telling the Israelites. Put the blood, make sure the blood covers your home. And if it does, the angel of death will, will pass over you. So after that happened in commemoration, God instituted a seven-day feast or a seven-day festival centered around the Passover meal. We see this in Exodus 12, 11 through 14. And God says, And thus you shall eat it. It is the Lord's Passover. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. So God says, In memory of this thing that I did every year, from now on to the end of time, you will keep this meal. You will sit down and you will eat this meal that I will call the, the Passover. And the idea was this was a meal of remembrance. It forced families to sit down and over that meal remember what God had done a year ago. Remember what God had done 50 years ago. Remember what God had done a thousand years ago. This thing went on and on, generation after generation after generation. And it was to force people to remember a God that had delivered them, that had saved them, that had redeemed them out of slavery. That was the purpose of the, of the meal. They did it every single year. Now, on the night before he dies, it's Passover, that week is Passover week. The Jerusalem is filled with pilgrims coming into the city to celebrate Passover. And Jesus and his disciples were good Jews. They were all Jews. They, they on Passover, on that night, you celebrated the Passover meal. So he and his disciples were doing what Jews before them had done generation after generation after generation after generation. But on that night, something was about to change. On that night, Jesus took that meal, that Passover meal that had been celebrated for, for, for centuries upon centuries, and he transformed it into something completely new. Let's read Matthew 26, 26 through 28. It says this, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of, of sins. So you see, with those few words on that night, he changed everything completely. Now, we are still called to remember. This is a new meal of remembrance. This is the reason we eat the Lord's Supper, and we'll talk about this over the next couple of weeks. It's a meal of remembrance. 
We are still called to remember. But the difference is now we don't go back to Egypt, we go back to Calvary. We don't go back to the blood of a lamb on a doorpost. We go back to the blood of the lamb that was shed on the cross. But it's, a, it's the same. He said, okay, that meal is over. Now I'm giving you a new meal. I'm giving you a new meal of remembrance. You don't have to remember Egypt anymore. Now you remember Calvary. You don't have to remember the blood of a, of a lamb anymore. You, you remember the blood of the lamb that's been shed for the, for the remission of sins for many. So again, when we think about our redemption and our salvation, we don't look back at the blood on the doorpost. We look back at the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. So this is a new meal that, that Jesus is instituting. And that, it is that meal that serves as a reminder of our redemption. I don't have to open the Bible and read a story anymore. It's real for me. I'm not reading about Israelites. I'm reading about Derek. This is my redemption. This is my salvation. This is, I've been delivered from slavery to sin, my slavery to death. He, he has changed me. He's delivered me. This is my meal of remembrance. So what Jesus was doing on that night, it was he was transforming the Passover into communion. Okay? Um, so for the Christian, by the way, the Passover has no significance anymore. Yeah, it's interesting to study if somebody wants to go out and, and set up the Passover meal and eat it and study it and look at all the different types and, and pointers in the meal that was pointing, that's fine. But it has no significance for me. For me, the Lord's Supper is my memorial meal. That's just a type. It, it, see, that's what, so, you know, think about it. The Passover was a type that was pointing toward the reality. That's why, that's just, it's, that's just pretend now. This is real. I've got a real Savior, a real Redeemer that's delivered me from real sin and real slavery. Now this is my meal of remembrance from, from here on. So Christ gave us a way, you and I, to remember Him and His sacrifice because now He wants the cross to become the focus of our remembrance. Okay, Those are stories now. They're good stories. We can learn from those stories way back. But he wants us to sit down and he wants us to remember the cross. He wants to remember not what somebody did for the Israelites. He wants us to remember what he did for us. This is what the Lord's Supper is, is all about. And that is precisely what the early church did. Okay, They understood this was a meal of remembrance. So, here's the question. How, and this is really interesting. How did the early church observe communion? Things have changed over the years. You know, today we come in and we, we, we put the, the, the bread and the juice up here on a table and we cover it and, you know, we come up and uncover it and we pass it out. We've kind of got a traditional way that we do it. But how did the early church do it? What, what, you know, what did they do? Which is really interesting. Well, I want you to realize the only example they had to go by, because they were, this was new, the only example they had to go by was the example that Jesus set. Okay? Jesus said, as often as you eat this, as often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Well, the only example they had to go by was what Jesus did. Now, go back to Matthew 26. We read it just a few minutes ago, and, and sometimes we miss this. Jesus comes into an upper room, and he sits down to a meal, and they begin to eat. In fact, it even says, now, as they were, what? Eating, Jesus took the bread, and he took the wine. 
In other words, they sat down to a real meal, a regular meal, and began to eat. And at the end of that meal, Jesus says, this is the bread and this is the, this is the wine, and they began to celebrate it, okay? You see, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he did it at the end of a regular meal, at the regular supper. And as far as our historical records can tell us uh, that we go back and look at, the early church did exactly the same thing. They basically reenacted that supper in remembrance of Jesus and his death. They said, well, this is the way Jesus did it. We're going to do it the exact same way. See, what happened is this meal became a regular part of the life of believers. If you go back to Acts 2.42, it tells us four things the early church did. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to what? The breaking of bread. That's eating meals together. Okay? And finally, they devoted themselves to prayer. In fact, that term, breaking of bread is a very specific term. You remember in the upper room, Jesus said, it says he took the bread and he what? He broke it. You see, that term breaking of bread is an ancient term. It's a very old term, and it signifies the custom of fellowshipping over a meal. You come together and you break bread together. We still say this sometimes today, not a lot, but that means we get together and we fellowship over a meal. Okay, it's not the idea, let's go to McDonald's and, and get a quick hamburger and get out of here, right? It's the idea that we come together, we take our time, we sit down, we talk, we fellowship, and we do that over, over a meal. That's the idea of the breaking of bread. That's what Jesus and his disciples did the night before his death. When you go back and you read this in some of the early history, most, in fact, many, not only many, but most Bible scholars and church historians are convinced that the early church celebrated the Lord's table on a continual basis. Whenever they met, they had a meal together, and at the end of that meal, they would take the Lord's Supper. So, so keep in mind, the early church didn't meet in a, in a place like this, did they? They didn't have buildings. Where did they meet? They met in people's houses. They would come to a house, they would sit down... And, and, and pretty much every time they came together and sat down and to, to, as a house church, they would eat a meal every time. And pretty much at the end of that meal, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. Every time they met, they would eat a meal, and every time they met, they would take the Lord's Supper. Okay? So this, this regular meal, so everybody with me so far? You had a regular meal. And at the end of that meal, you would stand up and somebody would say some words and they would do the Lord's Supper. This is, that was their custom early on. Now, the regular meal kind of took on its own thing and it became known as the agape feast or the love feast. You, you might have heard that term in the Bible uh, once or twice. That, that regular meal became known as the love feast and then the meal at the end, the celebrating of the bread and the wine, became known as the Lord's Supper. So this love feast was a meal eaten by Christians in the early church. By the way, it had two purposes. One purpose was fellowship, right? Breaking of bread. But the other purpose was also because they were hungry. Keep in mind, and we're going to talk about this and, and because we kind of forget this. And by the way, this love feast is mentioned in the Bible in Jude 1.12. It says this, these are, and he's talking about ungodly men. He says, these are hidden reefs at your love feast. 
They feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. He's saying these ungodly people will come in and feast with you, eat with you at this supper, this meal that you're taking called the love feast. And he's warning them about them. He's saying these are reefs that you can shipwreck your, your faith on. So these love feasts became a pretty normal thing in the, in the early church. So I want to make sure we all understand. They would come together. They'd have a regular meal just like Jesus did. And at the end of that meal, they would do just as Jesus did. They would take the bread, they would take the wine, and they would remember the Lord's death. That was a pretty regular occurrence in the early church. This is how they celebrated the Lord's Supper. In somebody's home after a, a normal meal. Okay? And this was what was happening in Corinth. So to a church that met in a house, to a church that ate a regular meal, and then to a church that would then observe the Lord's Supper, Paul writes this. Let's look at our verses today. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 25, and we'll start with verse 17. Paul says this. And remember, this is the church he's writing to. Church that meets in a house, has a regular meal, and at the end of that regular meal, they take the Lord's Supper. Paul writes this. But in the following instructions... I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now, do not miss what he said there. He put it in nice, friendly language, but this is what Paul is basically saying. Literally, you'd be better off if you stayed home. Let me go back and let you read that again. He says, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Does everybody see what he's saying? You'd be better off, folks, if you stayed home. Just stay home, because when you come together, it's for the worse. That's literally what he's saying. Instead of your worship and your fellowship being helpful and being edifying, it's actually destructive. Paul says, I can't commend you. You'd be better off just to, just to stay home. Now, that is an incredible statement for an apostle to make. I mean, he, this, is, this is the same Bible that says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And Paul literally says, you'd be better off if you just stayed home. Now, what in the world could be going on in a church to make Paul make a statement like that, that you'd be better off not even getting together? What, what in the world could be, could be going on? Well, he tells us in verses 18 through 19. He says, for, and by the way, I always say this, that word for is a connecting word. It means because. Because, in the first place, he's... In other words, i got multiple reasons for you. But in the first place, when you come together as a church, don't miss that. See, when you come together as a church, when you meet together in a home, when you meet together in a facility, when you meet together in a building, and you come as a church, you come as a group of believers to worship the Lord, that's what he's saying. I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Okay? Paul says when you come together as a church, there's factions, there's divisions. You're not united as one. You're fighting amongst yourself. And so he goes on. Now, I covered this earlier, uh, uh, several months ago, but I think it bears repeating. And I want you to listen to me very closely. As bad as factions and divisions are, God uses them to serve the church, although it is painful. Now, let me say that again. 
as bad as factions and divisions are, and we want our church to be unified. We don't want factions. We don't want divisions. But as bad as they are, they do serve the church. Now, we may ask how. How in the world can factions and divisions serve the church? Well, what Paul tells us here is they provide an opportunity to differentiate between real and unreal Christians. Okay? Factions and divisions provide an opportunity to differentiate between real and unreal Christians. Now, that doesn't mean that factions only occur between Christians and non-Christians. Even Christians have... Uh, sometimes we have disagreements, right? We, we, that just happens. But what happened is, Scripture is telling us here that factions serve to reveal false Christians. See, factions and divisions in a church, what they do is they expose in somebody an unwillingness to submit. They expose in somebody an unwillingness to forgive, to be merciful, to put others ahead of ourselves. By the way, those are all should be characteristics of a Christian, should they not? The ability to submit, the ability to forgive, the ability to put others ahead of yourself. That should, that should be what Christians are doing. So what happens is when you see somebody in a church that won't submit, that won't forgive, that won't be merciful, that won't put others ahead of ourselves, then Paul's saying, see, that it's, it's showing you when factions arise in a church, it shows you who the real Christians are and who the, who the not real Christians are. I read this somewhere and I always like this statement. You don't know who the peacemakers are until you need somebody to make peace. You ever thought about that? You don't know who the peacemakers are until you need somebody to make peace. You see, when factions arise in a church, you'll find out who the real Christians are you'll find out who the, who the peacemakers are. It's, see, it's adversity and struggle and contention that causes true godly people to kind of rise to the top and be visible. You see, trouble, I, I know this is true in my life, I'm sure it's true in life, your life. Trouble always has a way of revealing what's really in your heart. You don't really see it in the good times, but when trouble comes and adversity comes, it'll show you what's really inside of you. And the genuine Christians... They are the ones that hang in there, even in the trouble, and they give evidence of walking in the Spirit, even in the midst of a difficult situation. So that's what Paul's saying. Paul says, there's trouble among you. There's divisions. And he says, I, I, he says, I don't doubt it, because there must be trouble in order to differentiate between the real and the unreal. That's what he's, that's what he's, what he's saying there. Look at verse 20. He goes on. When you come together... It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Okay? In other words, Paul says you're eating, you're, you're drinking wine, you're drinking whatever, you're eating food, those kind of things, but you're not observing the Lord's Supper. You might think it's the Lord's Supper. You might be eating the bread. You might even be saying some pretty words and all that kind of thing. But he says, I got news for you. That is not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. Well, why, Paul? Why would it not be the Lord's Supper? Well, he tells us in verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. Okay? Now remember, you got to remember, this is why I covered all this. How are they eating the Lord's Supper? They meet in a house, and what's the first thing they do? They have a, they have a regular meal. Okay? Everybody's bringing their food in. They have a regular meal. And then at the end of that meal, they observe the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, when you eat, 
each one just goes ahead with their own food. They don't wait on one another. And, and, and one is going hungry. And they don't, in other words, you don't, they don't have enough. And the other one's getting drunk, which means they have too much. Okay? See, one of the most beautiful things about Christianity, especially in the early days when you really saw this, is that Christianity is no respecter of persons. The Roman Empire was an empire of class. You had the haves and you had the have-nots. You had the free and you had the slaves. And, and what, what you saw there in early Christianity was there was no respecter of persons. Christianity said all is welcome. It don't matter if you're rich or poor or slave or free. And I think we sometimes forget what was going on and how, how radical that was in the, in the early church. I mean, slaves were being saved. Beggars were being saved. Widows were being saved. People without anything. They couldn't bring anything to the table. But there was this common brotherhood between rich and poor, between slaves and free. People would come together and everybody's needs... Remember the book of Acts when it was telling us they would sell what they had to give to the poor to make sure other people were taken care of? There was this camaraderie going on where the haves were taking care of the have-nots. So they would come into these different houses and they would share meals. And listen, there were beggars coming in that couldn't bring anything. There were slaves coming in that couldn't bring, bring anything in and, into this meal. And what should have been a thing of beauty? What, what should have been a witness to a lost and dying world where, where Christians were sharing with other Christians, haves were sharing with the have-nots, that thing that should have been beautiful turned into this ugly spectacle of drunkenness and gluttony and, and selfish, selfishness, okay? The rich people who had enough... See, the rich, what would happen was this. You'd all come together at a house. And listen, if we, had, if we had a potluck dinner at my house tonight and I said, everybody bring something, I guarantee you in this room, everybody could bring something. Yes or no? Everybody can bring something because in this country, in this county where we live, everybody has enough to bring something. But see, in that day, they didn't. There were people coming that just could not bring anything. They didn't, they didn't know where their next meal was coming from. So they would come, you know, so the richer people, they would be the ones to bring the food and, and bring the wine. So it was supposed to be this potluck dinner, right? It was supposed to be this common meal where there was a symbolic sharing of food which symbolized uh, the, everything in the Christian community, right? It, it, it symbolized what Christianity was all about. But Paul says they would come together, but they wouldn't even wait. That, that's what he's saying. Look what he said again. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, and one goes hungry and another gets drunk. People said you bring, people would bring their food, and instead of waiting for the poor people to get there, they just eat their food. They'd get their little family over, and let's just eat our food before anybody else can get to it, right? I mean, it was just this, it was this selfish thing. Anybody ever been to a reunion? And, you know, they put the food out there. You ever seen the people that go through and they take a plate and then they go put it in their car and they come back? Kathy's people do that. My people don't do that. <laughs> and they, they take four or five plates and they go put and everybody's looking at them. Well, those shouldn't be, right? Everybody got any of those kind of people at your, at your reunions? I see some hands up there. See, the, I mean, I don't even know why I said that. I got nothing to do with this. But the point was, the point was, it was all about, let's get ours. Everybody with me? It wasn't about sharing. It wasn't about camaraderie. It wasn't about 
put, put symbolizing what's... You know, it wasn't about that at all. It was about, let's get ours. Let's make sure we eat before anybody else gets to it. Let's make sure there's enough for us. Okay? And then others, so people were just turning into gluttons, and they were just grabbing and going, and somebody had brought some wine, and they just, I mean, let's get this before... In fact, see, that's the thing about it. Think about that. They wouldn't just drink enough to, to quench their thirst. They would go overboard and drink more to get drunk. See, that's, that's a sign. They wouldn't even put it aside. Let's save that for somebody else. Let's get it before somebody else can get it. This is the good stuff. I mean, there's, just, there's a spirit here that's just wrong. It's real wrong. And that's, this is what Paul is, is talking about. See, and, and in Paul's mind, he, he just can't figure this out. You, you say you're Christians. How can you, how can you act like this? In fact, it's so far from being a Christian, Paul gets sarcastic. And if you don't think Paul's a man like any other man, he can get sarcastic just like any other man. In fact, look what he says in verse 22. He says, basically he says, what's going on? That's really what he's saying. What's going on? Do you don't have houses to eat and drink in? Do you just, in fact, watch what he says. Do you despise the, in other words, he says, or do you hate the church of God and you just want to humiliate people? That's what, y'all see what he's saying there? He said, what's wrong with you? Do, do you literally hate the church of God that you want to humiliate people? And do, is, that, is that what's going on? Paul says, what am I going to say to you? Should I commend you for this? No. No, I, I'll never do that. I mean, look what he's saying. He's saying, what, what's wrong with you? Are you homeless? That's basically what he's saying. Don't you have a house where you can eat and drink in? Do you, are you just roaming the streets and this is the only meal that you're ever going to get so you just come in and start, and start throwing the food back before anybody else can, can do, get to it? Is that why you're doing what you're doing? He goes on saying, oh, maybe it's that you really despise the church of God. Maybe you hate the church so much that you find one of these places to go just so you can humiliate the beggars, just so you can humiliate people that have nothing. Is that, is that what you're doing? I mean, he's really getting sarcastic. He is really frustrated with, with their behavior. Now, at this point, Paul wants to bring these people... The reason he's writing the letter is to bring them back in line, to, to show them the error of their ways and show them what they should be doing right. So... In order to do that, he's going to explain the purpose. He wants to get them back to this is what the Lord's Supper is all about, which is what we're going to talk about again for the next week or two. What is, what is the Lord's Supper supposed to mean? Okay, Look what he says in verse 23. And this is, he's, going to, he's going to hit a piece of Scripture here that we all pretty much know by heart because we've heard it quoted over and over and over again. He says this, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Now this is really interesting. We've had the Bible for so long, and mine's right here. We've had this Bible for so long that we start to take a few things for granted. And one of the things that we take for granted that if you go back and you read all the historians and all the scholars, it is a virtual certainty that the book of Corinthians was written before the Gospels. In other words, this letter to the Corinthian church was written super, super early. It is, it is old, old, old. And it was actually written chronologically before somebody wrote the Gospels. So even though the Gospels appear first in the New Testament for us, they don't appear chronologically. That's not the right order. 
So what you have here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is the very first statement from Jesus Himself about the Lord's Supper. Okay, the very first statement. Now, to understand all of it, of course, we need to go back and read, we need to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John and see it in context and see what all happened. But here, many scholars would say, here is the earliest account of the Lord's Supper. This is the earliest account. This is what the church is hearing first and, and foremost. And Paul says, I got it directly from Jesus himself. He, I, this is not my opinion, he says. This is not my idea. This is not some tradition that men have established. What I'm about to say, he's saying, I received from Jesus himself. He told me this. Whether it was in a vision or uh, wh- however it happened, we don't know. But he said, Jesus himself told me this. And here's what Paul said. He, 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 he says, verse 23 to 24, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. By the way, don't don't look up in verse 25. In the same way... He also took the cup, when? After supper. See, he ate a meal, and after the meal was over, he celebrated the Lord's Supper after a meal. So this is exactly, you can see here again, why they did it the way that they did it. Now we've got those verses right there, there's a lot there. So we're going to be there at least another week on those verses and, and maybe more. We've got a lot to cover over the next week or so regarding the Lord's Supper. But I want to end today with a question, because I, I think this sometimes, and I think probably other people do it. Why don't we follow the pattern of the early church? Why don't we do it like they did it? If Jesus ate the Lord's Supper or celebrated the Lord's Supper at the end of a regular meal, and the early church celebrated the Lord's Supper at the end of a regular meal, why don't we do it that way? Why don't we go back and start having a regular meal and then doing the Lord's Supper? And I've, and I've heard a lot of that. By the way... So, so this is what I want to get here. Before we go off thinking, well, we need to go back and do it that way, there's a couple of things you need to know about this, which is also really interesting. By the way, there are denominations, some small denominations today, that still do that. They still have a meal that they refer to as a love feast. Okay, um, Let's see, the Moravians, and again, these are some real kind of, I don't even know much about these. The Moravians, the Church of the Brethren, the Old German Baptists, the Dunkard Brethren, and a few others still do it their way. There's also some house churches that try to implement that, right? Which kind of makes sense. You're meeting in a house, you have a meal, you do the Lord's Supper. In some of their cases, they have a whole ceremony. It includes a foot washing, uh, then the love feast meal, and then the observance of communion. And I, as I mentioned, some home churches have also tried to do that. But here's the interesting thing. This connection between this love feast and the Lord's Supper didn't last very long. Okay, everybody with me? I want to go back. In the, in the upper room, Jesus has a meal, has a Lord's Supper. The early church says, well, how are we supposed to do this? Well, we'll do it the way Jesus did. We'll have a, a meal, and then at the end of the meal, we'll have the Lord's Supper. And so that first meal became known as a love feast, and the second meal became known as communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. 
So before we think we ought to go back and do it the way they did, understand something. The way they did it did not last very long. And you may say, well, why? I wonder why that didn't last very long. Well, you can blame the Corinthians for that. Okay? Because you see, when they started doing that, it didn't work out very good, did it? See, many scholars will point to the Corinthian church as the reason those two things got broke apart because they tried to do it that way and it didn't work, okay? See, the reason it didn't work is because what happened is they debased the Lord's Supper by connecting it too closely with a regular meal. Everybody with me? See, they had that regular meal and they had the Lord's Supper. It all became about the regular meal, it all became about the, the food. It all came about the wine. It didn't become about the Lord's Supper. And the whole thing just kind of went down. So again, see the physical eating of the Lord's Supper, Jesus taught us this. It's not about uh, sustenance. It's not about filling yourself up with bread or wine. That's, that was done in the regular meal. The Lord's Supper is about celebrating His death. It's about proclaiming His death. It's about remembering what He did. But the Corinthians got those two tangled up. They, they, they got too close together. And that's why Paul says, what you're eating, that ain't the Lord's Supper. In fact, it's the opposite of the Lord's Supper, what you're doing. So this, this thing very early on kind of fell apart. That, that model just didn't, uh, didn't work. See, in, Cor in Corinth, it became more about the love feast became more important than the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper became... Debase. And, and so most people agree that's probably one of the reasons that very early on those two things separated. The Lord's Supper kind of became a thing on its own. So we have to be careful and think, well, just because they did it that way, it was right. Turns out it probably wasn't the right way to do it at all. It's just the only thing that they, only thing that they knew. You see, in the end, how you observe the Lord's Supper is not really prescribed in Scripture. You could have it after a meal in your home and you would probably follow the biblical pattern. Or you could have the Lord's Supper first and then go eat the meal. In fact, I would probably say, that's probably better. Let's do this first because it's the important. Then let's go eat the meal for sustenance and, and fellowship. You could do that. Um, you could have it like we do in the church, apart from a meal. And I think that's absolutely fine. You see, the point is not how. The point is that you do it. That's the point. Jesus just said, do it. Do this in remembrance of me. It's not necessarily how you do it, it's that you do it. The point is that we do it in remembrance of him. The point is that we walk in obedience. There are two things he said do as a Christian. You are to be baptized and you are to remember me in the Lord's Supper. And we observe that year after year after century after century, millennium after millennium. We go back and remember the cross. We remember what he, what he did for it, us. Now, as I said, next week we will be here for another week or two. There's a lot to cover about the Lord's Supper. What does it mean? Um, how often should we do it? How should we do it? A lot of different things there. And so we'll cover that next, or begin to cover that next week with the Lord's Supper part two. Let's pray. Father,